0: The health physics profession has existed for nominally three generations. We have been training those people the entire time. So every single generation of U.S. health physicists has had some training from I thought that was just, you know, when somebody's, you know, an instructional designer is developing a slide or a video, you know, for a training, think about that. I'm working on this, this slide presentation, think about, we're training all the health physicists in the United States. You know, that, now back to the impact.
1: You're listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Join Michael Holtz and his guests for conversations about all things ORAU. They'll talk about ORAU's storied history, our impact on an ever-changing world, our innovative scientific and technical solutions for our customers, and our commitment to the communities where we do business. Welcome to Further Together, the O-R-A-U Podcast.
2: Welcome to Further Together, the O-R-A-U Podcast. As ever, I'm your host, Michael Holtz, in the Communications and Marketing Department at Oak Ridge Associated Universities. And for the first time in a while, I'm joined by a co-host. I'm happy to introduce Adam Delahousey, who is an intern working in the communications and marketing department this summer. Adam, welcome. Hey, Michael. I'm happy to be here. So um, you're a student at the University of Tennessee. You're interning with us for
3: a few weeks this summer,
2: Um, and you've been with us for a couple of weeks. What do you think so far?
3: I am honestly a little blown away by the operations with this organization. I knew basically just research and development was the vague idea I had uh, upon applying. And it's just, I think the scope of what gets done here is absolutely incredible. Yesterday I was down in the classroom watching seventh graders try and manipulate artificial intelligence on their iPads. But last week I was talking to someone developing a single session uh, radiation therapy for cancer patients. So just the variety of things that get uh tackled here are just incredible. Welcome to ORU,
2: right? <laughs> well, we have um, two guests who are returning to the Further Together podcast to talk about um, really, Adam, some of what you've touched on, but from a more global perspective of sort of the impact that ORU has had historically on society. So I'd like to welcome back to the podcast. Andy Page, president and CEO of ORU and Jeff Miller, senior director of ORU government services. I think I got that right. <laughs> I see him, I'm seeing thumbs up, so that's a good thing. Andy and Jeff, welcome back to Further Together. Hey,
4: Michael, Adam, it's great to be here this morning. Thank you for having us. And Adam, thank you for being part of our team.
2: Thank you for having me. Yeah,
0: welcome aboard, Adam.
2: Thank you. So, we, I wanted to have this conversation with the two of you based on basically a slide that was presented at an all hands meeting not too long ago that talks about our impact from really a more global perspective. I mean, um, you know, we talk about the work that we do on this podcast all the time. Um, we try to communicate, you know, the, the great things that are happening in so many arenas as often as we can through the podcast, through social media, on our website, but we don't always have the opportunity to sort of put it all in context for what does this mean from um, really a more global perspective. So, Andy and Jeff, what I wanted to do was bring you together to really put a, I guess, finer point on that global impact and, um, jeff you presented you both presented at the all hands meeting kind of a 13-point list of what our impact is how did that list come about and um what i guess what has been the reaction from folks so far who have who had the opportunity to see that list
0: yeah so the, the first part of it how did that list get created uh we we had a business development um a workshop about two years ago or so. Uh, and one of the exercises was really to think from a broader perspective, You know, what are some of the impacts that ORU has had and things that we would brag about if someone asked us. And so uh, you were at that, at that, that workshop, mm-hmm. night, so a team of us kind of came up with this list. Um, and it was really a brainstorming exercise. And, uh, it, it, but it was amazing. It really only took us about an hour you know, to come up with this list. And it just, it just kept growing and growing and growing. And and people offered different things based upon their perspective. And so we did that. And, you know, and when that with the work product was this list of really impressive um, things that ORU has done uh, in that we're currently doing that we've done in the not too distant past uh, that really have a big impact on society and some, both sometimes globally as well as just nationally. Uh, and so we created that, then it kind of sat on the shelf for a little while. And then we were planning
5: for uh, an all-staff meeting when Laura we were Government federal services a, a couple months ago, and we talked about resurrecting that, saying that, that would be a good opportunity uh, to kind of bring some, shine some
0: light on that uh, for a couple of weeks. First of all, we have a lot of new people, like Adam, you know, that's <laughs> really don't know the history and they're learning about ORU for the first time. So you you want to provide that context for new employees. So that was one of the purposes. And then the second purpose was really for people that may have been with ORU for a long period of time. But sometimes we all get you know kind of just tied up into our day-to-day routine and we kind of lose perspective. And, and we forget to kind of pull up from a 30,000 foot view and say, What's the broader impact of the work that I'm currently doing? And we wanted to make, to help people make that connection. Because we know that when people really understand how they're contributing to the broader mission of the organization, you know, they're more engaged, they're more motivated, you know, they feel like they're making a contribution. Um, And that's just good for the overall culture at ORU. So that's kind of how things started. And it kind of evolved into this recent all staff meeting where we. Andy and I kind of stood up and we just talked about some of this. And that's what you heard, Michael, was Andy and I just having this conversation.
2: Right.
4: Yeah, Jeff, I remembered it as such a refreshing exercise because, you know, we're we're kind of a humble organization. We don't like to brag uh, about the things that we do because the people that come here, they come here to be very mission focused about serving the public good. And so when you're serving the public good, you're not necessarily jumping up and you know bragging about you know what you do and so and so you challenge us all to think about well if we had to brag about what we've done and the impacts that we have what would they be and you know it got everybody into a great mindset of thinking about these larger impacts and what over our history 75 year history you know what has or or you done to serve the American public and to to make America more competitive so I just kudos to you for a great exercise that you let us see that day.
2: It was a great exercise, and just looking at some of the items on the list, it's it's really impressive to think that, you know, Andy, as you said, this humble company that's been around for you know seventy five plus years has had this kind of impact on, um, on society, on our country, on the world, even. Um, so where do we start with sort of jumping into what some of those impacts are?
0: Yeah. Well, I, I have a suggestion for that. Yeah. So, so first of all, I, you know, where, where I started is I went back to a book, uh, and it's, it was called O.R.U. From the Beginning. And I think it was written mm-hmm. in about 1987, I want to think, somewhere around there. And it was a retrospective about about the founding of the Oak Ridge Institute for Nuclear Studies back in 1947, and kind of gave the history up through that, up into the late eighties. Uh, and, and I just found that fascinating. And, and Adam, that's something I would recommend for you. It's on our our internal webpage, you can go look at it. And it talks about the early history of Orens, as we were called back then, and, and our involvement with the early um, the, the early exploration of radioisotopes for the treatment of cancer. And we had a hospital, you know, and, and we were, you know, exploring the therapeutic value of radioisotopes, and it's like, wow, I, I never knew that until I read this yeah. this document. So that's a good source of things. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it kind of evolved to, okay, that's historical, but what are some things that I know that are going on right now, you know, that, uh, would be equally impressive, and Andy said it. You know that we don't typically brag about what we do, but that exercise that we were in that workshop, Michael, you may remember it was it was called something like, you know, things to brag about or something. like, And you know the business yeah, yeah. they want they want us to brag about some of the technical right uh, accomplishments, and so it kind of forced us to do that. So, so, um, so I, I think that you know the the. the you know, getting that context of, you know, certainly if, if people, you know, have access to that, who are you from the beginning? That, that's very informative. But,
2: uh, yeah, I've, I've actually done a couple of presentations on um, the cancer hospital um, itself recently, the the O'Rodd's medical division, and people are blown away when, you know, I talk about, you know, this was actually happening right here in Oak Ridge and people had no clue You know, because, again, we don't talk about it. It hasn't been around. I mean, the hospital closed in 1974, 1975. So, you know, it hasn't existed. But, you know, we have this um, incredible history of having an impact on nuclear medicine. And as a cancer patient, for me, you know, cancer survivor, for me, it's this full circle moment of, coming back to a place where, you know, I was treated with radiation, the roots of what we understand about radiation therapy probably started in the background in the place where I live, and I didn't know about it until I came to work for ORU, so that's a cool story that I love to tell, anyway, so. um, Well, you know,
0: and that might be a good starting point for us, Michael, is is to talk about you know, some of the, uh, there's one specific program that I'm thinking of, and we, we call it professional training programs, and really yep. it's, it's training for uh, radiological health, um, and it's something that we have been doing since 1947. I mean, that was like one right. of the first missions that we had was to educate people and train people on radioisotopes and, you know, kind of peaceful uses of radioisotopes. And that evolved into the uh, historians uh, may remember the Adams for Peace program that President Eisenhower mm-hmm. instituted in the 50s, 1956, 57. We were involved with that and we had like a mobile van where we would go out and do training you know, at various locations about the Peace uses as the atom. We did that internationally. And we have a version of that that training that still exists to this day. So it's arguably a program that we've been executing for 75 plus years, and it's wow. it's a fantastic program. <laughs> I mean, the, the people it, within ORU government service that provide this training, you know, we have students from all over the world that participate in this. Uh, you know, they, they, they develop the capability to not only do live person face-to-face training where people come to Oak Ridge and go through training related to measurement and and testing for radioisotopes in the environment and and things like that. But they've also developed that training so it can be done asynchronously online so people can execute that, you know, uh, on a schedule that fits them best. Uh, And we've been doing that training for that entire time. And, and the impact statement that, that we had was, we have trained all three generations of U.S. health physicists. So health physicists are really s- specialists in the health and safety field that deal specifically with radiological health. Okay, and we have, I mean, we have phenomenal cadre. We must have 35 or 40 health physicists at ORU. Right. So we are one of the leading uh, brain trust for health physics in the world, um, and some of them provide training for other health physicists and other science, science and technical professionals that learn about radiation. Um, so we provide that training to them. And if you look at that, if you, the health physics profession has existed for nominally three generations. We have been training those people the entire time. So every single generation of U.S. health physicists some training from or so I thought that was just, you know, when somebody's, you know, a, an instructional designer is developing a slide or a video, you know, for a training. Nice. Think about that. I'm working on this, this this slide presentation. Think about we're training all the health physicists in the United States.
2: That's huge. Absolutely. That, and that's probably hundreds of thousands of of people over the, over well, the generations i mean yeah,
0: it's probably not that big because it's such a specialized field okay but well you're right it's, yeah. it's ten it's tens of thousands Yeah, you know? tens of thousands over, over sure. seven <laughs> thousand years, it's probably it maybe a couple hundred thousand over that time but um you know it's, it's people that the specialists in radiation and radiation health uh, medical uh, radio radiology it, those are the That's the target audience for
4: those types of um, training programs. And hey, Jeff, you know when you think about you know the 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 training of all those health physicists and all the impacts that they have, that really also dovetails very nicely into our education mission, right? Yeah, Um, absolutely. I mean, it's all about educating future. Uh, scientists, engineers, uh, researchers, and that really leads into kind of the STEM workforce development mission of ORU that has been in, in practice since 1946, 1947, when Dr. William Pollard had this vision of, you know, how, so when you think about the Manhattan Project in World War II, the government just cast a wide net and brought in all of this talent from across the country right. uh, to Oak Ridge, and so the the logical question that after the war is, well, where is the next generation of these scientists coming from? These engineers, these these people that you know created, you know, the, the Manhattan Project, and how do we apply it for peaceful purposes? You know, not necessarily for wartime purposes. And that was Dr. Pollard's vision of creating a consortium of southeastern universities um, that would, you know, be tapped into to uh, bring the, the next talent into, it was known as the Clinton works during the war, but now it's known as Oak Ridge National Laboratory, which is, of course, one of the premier scientific laboratories in the world. And so from that mission has grown our, our STEM WD mission in which we recruit over nine thousand participants every single year, to take place in research programs over two hundred and fifty federal, national laboratories and federally funded research, you know, centers. I mean, before we started here, Adam was talking about yesterday he got to witness, you know, kids uh, down in the classroom using, you know, AI on their iPads. They are part of this multi-generational pipeline you know, that we have created uh, here at ORU to put, you know, for everything from K through 12, all the way up to Mm postdocs into um, areas of national laboratories and major research initiatives. And you think about the the alumni of all of that and where they've gone on to and the things that they have done. It has had a a tremendous, um, I think, impact on, america's scientific competitiveness absolutely um and and to think about how we recruit all of these participants we, we recruit across the world we do i mean you know it's amazing when you think about uh, that we're recruiting from countries across the world because we're not just you know focusing on what is the stem talent in the united mm-hmm. states but we recognize that it's a global mission you know to enhance you know that type of a capability and we want the best and the brightest uh, serving in our national laboratories and in our federally funded research facilities across the U.S. to enhance, you know, that, that those centers' scientific missions that serve the public good. So I was thinking that really dovetailed very nicely into the, the way that Jeff was describing, you know, the health physics training program that, you know, is such a bedrock of our foundation and how it really dovetailed nicely into our STEM workforce development mission.
2: Absolutely. One of the, one of the parts I love about my role in hosting this podcast is I get the opportunity to talk to a number of the research participants that we place in roles in, you know, Oak Ridge National Lab, but across DOE and our other federal partners. And I'm always blown away by A, the caliber, you know, which, you know, Andy, as you said, we're, we're recruiting the best and the brightest, but the scope of the science that these participants are involved in. It's, you know, it's not just one thing. It's not just the nuclear industry. And I guess mean, that's important, but, and it's not just the energy. It's, you know, um, the environment, it's, um, public health, it's, you know, really across the board, our capabilities sort of writ large across the, the scientific landscape of the country. And, and even business and business side and communication side folks. So it's truly all aspects of the scientific enterprise that we have touched, um, again, over the 75 plus years that we've been in existence. And, and that is exciting you know, for me to talk about, to be able to talk to some of those folks.
4: Yeah, Michael, you get to you get to really you know kind of see a lot of that. I mean, you're you're running our extreme classroom makeover program right now, and you and I were just recently up in Sevierville to award you know an extreme classroom makeover um, award to a very bright, energetic you Absolutely. know um, science teacher that's just going to do really great work. And so you see how that really helps pay it forward, right? It does um, for sure. And that's part a part of our collateral mission of being a good corporate partner, uh, in in not in the, even in this region, but even having some federal agencies adopt our program yeah. and do it nationally, right? Yeah, I'm Taking it on the road to what, I, I forgot how many states and how many towns, um, you know, the Extreme Classroom Makeover now dubbed Mission uh, Possible by the Central Intelligence yeah, Agency. Yeah, we did eight prize it, awards this
2: year, so yeah. yeah.
4: Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's it just shows how all of this grows, you know, and it's very impactful, right? All the foundation.
0: Yeah, I I like the connection you made, Andy, to um, kind of the, the 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 STEM workforce, and you talked about alumni, you know, of which I mean there are hundreds of thousands of alumni that have worked in the Department of Energy. Uh, and worked on the scientific missions. And, and we have another program that, that touches some of those alumni. Um, and, and that's a, a program that we execute for the Centers for Disease Control, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. And yes. so there was some legislation back in, in about 2001 or so called the Energy Employees Occupational Illness Compensation Program Act Uh, And it recognized that there were a number of workers starting back to the Manhattan Project that worked for the Department of Energy and the the predecessor um, that developed
5: occupational disease as a result of their work. Okay, So um, this this legislation created a program to identify those along that and to uh, evaluate Their health conditions, and if they had developed an occupational disease, provide some compensation for them for for that disease. and And we have been involved with the execution of that program since 2005, so since the beginning when it first came off the ground. And and so the the broader impact is is that ORAU is helping former energy workers and their families receive compensation for our decisions. We don't provide the compensation, but we do
0: the science behind the decision that the Department of Labor does to determine whether the compensation is warranted. So um, and and right now, there's we have over 60,000 people that are alumni, you know, that have and many of them have gone through training programs at ORU, and they worked with radiological materials and and other hazardous materials. Um, And those 60,000 people have developed cancer. So, uh, uh, and various types of cancers. And and so we do the evaluation to determine, was it more likely than not, that their exposures at work contributed to that, and then we turn that information over to the National Institute for occupational safety and health. And they they process that that scientific data. Um, So so we play a big role in that and just to clarify for the you know the listeners that these were people that were working with radiological materials decades ago uh, back when we didn't know as much about the health effects of radiation we know much more now and, and things we have much different and much better controls in place today really starting in about 1990 and into 2000 you know the people that work with radiological materials now it's, it's very controlled and the exposures are you know you know very tiny compared to what they used to be you know when we were first learning about radioisotopes so so I just want to be, be clear about that. But you know we have you know retired workers you know that that we're evaluating what was their dose to radiation, you know, and then providing that information. And it's a really uh, it's a phenomenal program. I mean, the, the the level of research they go back. Sometimes, you know, going back to sites and reading laboratory notebooks about experiments and collecting data. You know, what were the measurements from the uh, dosimeters that measured radiation, and, and compiling all that information and making really complex calculations. Um, but that's having a big impact for those sixty thousand former workers and their families to help them
2: get compensation when justified. That's one of the most important things that we do. Sorry, Andy.
4: Yeah, that reminds me of, um, you know, that type of scientific analysis and accountability that's all part of the the, uh, dose reconstruction system and the work that we do for NIOSH and the CDC has also led to a tremendous capability for us to develop systems for the federal government that ensure that um, research is unbiased mm. and accountable, right? Uh, you think about the billions of dollars that the, the federal government, either through the NSF or Department of Energy or you know other federal agencies, is is moving through the kind of the research continuum. We have developed systems that I'll, I'll bring in subject matter experts that ensure uh, that type of research uh, is awarded appropriately. Uh, is unbiased and passes the rigor of what it needs to be in terms of being as accountable to the federal tax dollars that's, you know, funding that research. And that's been a, tr- a tremendous capability that we work under the Oak Ridge Institute for Science and Education or the Department of Energy's, you know, basic energy research.
2: Right.
4: Uh, so again, just kind of goes to show how um, our uh, in-depth capability in terms of scientific analysis and and research and developing systems like the Doge reconstruction system and our peer review system are helping, you know, serve the public good in, in many different ways.
2: I've actually had the opportunity to be a peer reviewer for organizations outside of um, our our customers. And yeah, I mean, the rigor involved in that process is um, really astounding. So our, our people do, our people do tremendous work ensuring the um really the viability and the 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 rigor it exists for um the awards that are made to conduct the research and then you know on the flip side of that when the research is complete that the reporting of that research you know meets high standards as well so uh, I, and that's a real
0: differentiator exactly. for a you. And as you know, I'm a scientist, so I I appreciate that that scientific rigor. And we apply that to a number of different programs. I was thinking about another program, Andy, that uh, where we apply that equal scientific rigor. And that's the work that we do for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Mm -hmm. they have a division, the Atmospheric Turbulence Diffusion Division. uh, and, And we manage the climate reference network across the United States for them, so we work hand in hand with with federal employees from NOAA and researchers from NOAA, uh, and and so we operate this network of meteorologic monitoring stations uh, across the U.S., which collects systematically collects uh, scientific data that's used to inform climate cli- climate change strategies. So. I mean, think about how important is that data? I mean, you want to make sure it's valid and reliable, because if you don't have valid right. and reliable data, it blows up all of that strategy related to climate change. And there's other networks that do that, but, but this, this mesoscale network that we're managing it contributes to that. And I think about the folks that are involved in that program. I mean, I think there's there's like four people up in Alaska right now setting up mm-hmm. two remote meteorologic stations. I mean, how cool is that job? <laughs> you know, I will tell, yeah.
5: tell, tell you, you
2: <laughs> and everyone in communications, <laughs> everyone in CM offered to go with them to uh, yeah. do social media and, and <laughs> video for those those installations.
0: So, but when you think about broader impacts, you know, if you know, for those folks that you know, the technicians that are out there monitoring the, those stations and calibrating and refreshing the equipment and stuff, it's not like I'm not just traipsing through the woods. You know, I'm actually (laughs) contributing to data collection that's going to inform climate change, climate change strategies. I mean, how much, (laughs) how much bigger of an impact could you have, you know, than to do something like that?
2: Absolutely.
4: Yeah, I think when when you think about that, you also think about our reputation as just being solution providers, you know, so... This kind of makes me think about, you know, I've I've been with the organization over 20 years now, and I didn't start as the president CEO. I started off as a lowly project manager in the national security program. Um, But it made me kind of think about, you know, in terms of the history of being a solution provider and the impact that ORU does, one of the highlights of my uh, time in the national security program was helping the FBI stand up a forensic capability to examine explosive devices. And so if you think about, you know, back into 2003, 2004, after the the war in Iraq was over and it entered into a high-intensity insurgency phase, um, the FBI was looking for a way to conduct forensic analysis of improvised explosive devices that was claiming, you know, U.S. servicemen's lives uh, over in Iraq, and it was a, a dynamic Situation in which they had to stand up a capability very quickly because this was a new type of warfare that you know um, we had never seen before—an insurgency warfare using um, these explosive devices—and they they came to us because they we had a FBI uh, workforce development program at the FBI laboratory, so they had heard of ORU. And so they came to us and said, could you help us put this capability together and recruit forensic experts um, to uh, handle this force? And we set up a tremendous capability in a very short period of time of, um, you know, biologists and uh, combat photographers and latent fingerprint experts basically went into recruiting uh, FBI employees that were getting ready to retire. But they wanted to continue to contribute to national security, and they came and we we established a, a tremendous asset uh, at the time called the Terrorist uh, Explosive Device Analytical Center at Quantico. Uh, that is still in existence today, and in fact has spread uh, its capability down to Huntsville, Alabama, oh. in the Redstone Arsenal, um, and it was it was a, such a tremendous capability and. It was so fascinating to be able to come in when these boxes of exploded shrapnel and pieces of metal and, you know, thing would come in a box. And we would, we would undertake the forensic analysis to determine who had put that device together. Uh, and I, I saw you employees doing things like inventing how to get latent fingerprints off the back of duct tape you know, through superglue. And you think that, you know, when you use duct tape or any tape, your fingerprints get all over the back of it, you know. And so we were able to lift fingerprints off tape and off uh, metal objects and even grass, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, plant, uh, which is why you needed the biologist and everything to, to trace it back to determine who were the insurgent bomb makers. And it was just such a tremendous capability that had such an impact in helping us uh, combat that type of surgency uh, overseas, not only in Iraq, but in Afghanistan as well. And I was just very proud to be part of that type of a national impact. And we still do that forensic work today, Uh, not maybe at the the same level, but we we still uh, do that type of forensic work and have people in place to do that even today. And so we're still serving you know, in, in, in that area. So I just thought that was a, a great, also a national security impact that we've had across the world.
2: Absolutely. I'm, I'm struck by Andy, you know, what you said about um, the, the inventiveness, the, the innovation to lift fingerprints off of duct tape. Um, and our, our folks in the field, you know, are innovators in a lot of different ways. But you, you talk about that situation. I know the folks that um, work at, at NOAA, ATDD, um, you know, when they're putting the the climate reference network stations together, they have to think about the, the climate that this thing is going to exist in and, you know, testing in the, I like to call it the extreme climate garage in Oak Ridge, you know, like the, you know, having to run tests to make sure that these things can stand up. So our folks are innovating all over the place. I mean, with, you know, standing up, you know, new technologies and new processes. And um, we're having an impact, you know, while we're talking about it sort of at this higher level, you know, but also kind of at a granular level, creating things that didn't exist before, Um, you know, or processes that... That didn't happen before we were involved in some way, shape, or form. So,
0: yeah, there's there's another example <laughs> yes, Yeah,
2: there's
0: another example of the, that innovation, uh, and and this was a derivative also out of the national security program, Andy. Uh, that uh, and and we developed a, a software application to help the Veterans uh, Health Administration manage their resources and assets and deploy those as needed. Um, and it's, it's a software called, we call it PIMS, Performance Improvement Management mm-hmm. System. But the impact of that is, is that by using this, this system, this software application, the VA is able to deploy resources whenever they have events, significant events. For example, let's say a hurricane is coming in you know, to the New Orleans area or some other part of the country. They can deploy assets, both people you know, and, and local volunteers to support that as well as materials. And, and we had we developed
5: that uh, specifically for the VA um, and they, they actually were able to make some modifications and employ that system to help them navigate through the pandemic and their resource management throughout the pandemic. It was, it, was, it was not built for that,
0: innovative enough to make some adjustments to the, the, the
2: application
0: so for pandemic resource management as well. So that's another good example of, of innovation by ORU employees.
2: There's this I see this through line of of you know we we started as a company on the cutting edge and we're still there uh you know in different ways perhaps but you know, we're still this this leading edge company in terms of being able to be innovative and bring our customers what they need and um, continue to, to grow the scientific pipeline. Um, are there other examples of that, that that are are part of our work?
0: Well, there's one, when you talk about growing the scientific pipeline that, that comes to mind for me, and that is the uh, the NASA postdoctoral program that mm. we uh, we administer for NASA. Okay, and you talk about developing a brain trust. I mean, if you think about NASA, I mean, you know, it's one of the most innovative and forward thinking agencies in, in the federal government, and, and they're able to attract attract the best and brightest people want to go work for NASA. But you know, you have to have a pipeline to get those scientists and engineers into NASA. And so they have a postdoctoral program. So individuals that have received their, their doctoral degree uh, in one of the sciences applicable to, to NASA will apply for and go through this kind of rigorous evaluation process and they select the best and brightest. I think there's about 125 or so people in the program right now. Um, and then they will go work for NASA you know as as a postdoctoral uh, uh fellow for nasa for a couple of years uh, and then many of them are up to three years and then many of them will go on to work directly for nasa but as i you know i read about and you you all have done some interviews with some of the the nasa postdocs uh, oh my mm-hmm. gosh talk about impressive uh, group of people um you know and, and you know, that's just an incredible national asset to have, you know, those people, you know, uh, contributing or in early in their careers, contributing to NASA uh, and the, the space mission that we have. And boy, there's there's a lot of exciting stuff happening with our space mission. Uh, you know, so that's.
2: Yeah, again, uh, I've had the opportunity to talk to several of those um, of the postdocs um, kind of in the current. Um, group and yeah they're doing some really amazing work and again you know andy mentioned earlier you know we're recruiting people from around the world where're you know um and bringing them here to be part of, of nasa as part of the NPP. so um it's just continues to be a lot, hey Michael, one of, a lot of excitement
4: one of the things you talked about it was kind of a, a throwback for me back to when Jeff started talking about you know the Health physics training—that's uh, been part of our core capability for decades—was the um, the fact that we run the um, Radiation Emergency Assistance Center training nice. site or React, um, as as part of our national impact too. And and so this is a this is an emergency response asset for the National Nuclear Security Administration uh, that is capable of worldwide deployment for any type of radiation accident or incident, or, you know, terrorist type of, you know, type of, of situation. And this is a really great team of dedicated physicians and nurses and health physicists, you know, that provide this type of capabilities for hospitals and first responders, you know, across the world in terms of dealing with, you know, these type of radiation incidents. But they're also not only a response asset, but they're a training center at the same time and kind of getting back to where Jeff started, you know, talking about this program with the uh, professional training program. They provide uh, radiation emergency triage and first responder um, emergency medicine to doctors and nurses and uh, first responders who come across from the world, um, come here to train right here in Oak Ridge on how to treat those injuries. And, you know, um, I just recall back, during the Fukushima Daiichi uh, nuclear power plant crisis in Japan um, about 10 or 12 years ago, REACTS was at the foremost part of the consultation with the American embassy in Japan and with uh, first responders on the ground about possible protective actions for impacted you know, uh, citizens in that area, but also was providing consultation and um, protective plans all the way up to the White House uh, through the DOE Nuclear Incident Team. Uh, so this just shows again the, the broad-reaching impact of a very small team of dedicated uh, people that you know are always you know at the forefront of things like this for us.
0: Yeah, I remember when we came up with that impact statement for 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 REACS, is You know,
4: we help
5: mitigate
0: the damage. Of- Every radiological disaster in the world. Okay, so that's I mean you're, you're thinking back, going back back to the Manhattan Project days, you know, all the way through up through today. You know, uh, you know somehow, some way, either Orange or ORU, if through Reacts, has had some impact on on all of those and helping mitigate the impacts of that, whether it's through direct response or for training the people that did respond or evaluating the consequences of that, you know, uh, later on through health effects. So, I mean, that, that's a, a mind boggling statement when you think
3: about that.
2: For sure. Hey, I want to give Adam an opportunity to toss up a question if you don't mind.
3: Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about public health, I know with, uh, radiation and things of that nature. But I wanted to kind of hone in on something a little more local to East Tennessee and Appalachia, and that's the opioid crisis. It's something that's become very pertinent, I think, in the last 20, 30 years in this area. But it's also something that ORAU has, again, had a hand in developing ways to improve and seek betterment for people that are affected by it. So I was just wondering if you guys could touch on that
0: yeah i'd be glad to and that that's a really important uh, part of what we do we have a really um, well-rounded cadre of public health professionals with within oru and and we have some folks that have specialized in um, health communications as in program evaluation related to addiction Uh, and we work on some grants from the National Institutes of Health. Uh, called It's the HEAL program, helping it end, end addiction long-term. And and one of the things that I was really impressed with regarding that is, I mean, it's, it's taking really a long-term solution, you know, looking at a long-term solution to the, to the addiction problem. <laughs> and one of the things I remember that, that we did is we helped educate the public uh, and the media about how to talk about addiction opioid addiction you know and so it was it was
5: uh,
0: as, and the way we got that information is we did we talked directly to people that had problem, addiction problems and doing focus groups i mean think about trying to pull together people with addiction issues into a focus group that's very difficult because you know they're, they're naturally very sensitive about that they, they're hard to get in touch with but our people were able to do that and have direct communication with them. They took that information and then turned it into a training program for the media and, uh, and, and law enforcement, as well as, you know, uh, governmental agencies and things Service
2: like that. Service yeah. providers. Yeah.
0: And, and it's, it's simple things like, uh, I remember the one that struck me is you know, people with addiction issues don't talk about being addicted to opioids. You know, they have, they have a pill problem, you know? And so you, have, you use the language that they use. Don't talk about opioids, you know, and, and use terms that we might just throw around loosely, you know, speak in the same language that the population uses. Uh, and that makes it, them more receptive. And it and, and also, I think, conveys the message that you understand, you have a better understanding of their world so uh, you know, my hat really goes off as a public health professional to our folks that work in in that area because well, what people don't realize is yeah, we had this this massive pandemic, but at the same time that pandemic was occurring, the opioid addiction crisis was, it was just skyrocketing. You know, so it got worse during the pandemic, uh, and so now we have to deal with that. You know? So. So that's, Adam, that's an example of some of the things that we're doing related to opioid addiction, especially as it occurs in Appalachia.
3: Awesome. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really cool that being able to use the language that they use, like you said. um, I think that that's a big problem with a lot of people who face addiction is feeling that they're dehumanized by maybe people outside of that "Quote unquote lifestyle," I guess we'll call it. Um, so, being able to relate to them on their level, I think, is something that's super, super important when dealing with addiction. So,
0: yeah, and, and that's a, that you know that's a good uh, message, and for you as uh, being a communication major, is you know something to think about. Okay, is if I'm really trying to communicate with that audience, what are some of the things that I need to do, you know, to help engage them?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, gentlemen, we've been we've been chatting for a while, and we've covered a lot of territory, and it's all been great. Is there anything um, we want to make sure that we cover before we kind of wrap things up? Not that I want to. Well, not that I want to end the conversation necessarily, because it's great, but um, we also want people to listen to the end. So. <laughs>
4: Well, uh, Michael, you used the word territory, so that, you know, made me think about our independent verification. So, you know, again, reaching back into, you know, the core capabilities of health physics, uh, we have created a tremendous uh, capability to help keep, you know, public land safe. And so, you know, as the Department of Energy or the National uh, Regulatory Commission is decommissioning Uh, government sites. They want to make sure that these sites are cleaned up to uh, absolute um, high priority specifications in terms of any type of contaminants that, you know, might be left behind, whether they're radiological or non-radiological. And uh, ORU developed a whole system called the Marsom system, uh, which is, you know, the the gold rule in terms of, you know, radiation and contaminant cleanup uh, in we are utilized to independently verify, you know, that all of these sites are cleaned up to the government's expectations, and and many of these sites now are turned over as public parks or industrial uh, sites for new businesses. And it, it's a great way for us to be part of ensuring that you know, these sites are safe and ready for public use. And you know, the mission that we have in terms of ensuring that cleanups are done to absolute specification. So you, when you use the word territory, it just kind of clicked in for me that we should talk a little bit about our independent verification mission and our work for DOE, uh, Office of Environmental Management, and our work for the NRC because the NRC relies on uh, us as their sole independent verifier uh, of these cleanup sites. And that's a heavy responsibility sure. that's, that's on 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 us to ensure that, you know, everything is done uh, to the exact specifications that need to, in terms of cleanup and turnover.
2: And Andy, to, you know, pointing back to something you said earlier in our conversation, it's one of those things that we've kind of always done quietly, you know, in the background, cause it's part of who we are. We don't really, we don't really crow about that work. We don't, we don't, we keep it to ourselves. We're humble about a lot of the work that we do. And, um, that's just one of, another one of those examples of great work that just kind of we do it because we've always done it. And it's great work and we have great people doing it. So,
4: And I think you're exactly right, Michael. If you think about all the things that we've talked about this morning, they all have a nexus back to the core capabilities that founded this this company. For sure. Back in 19, 1940s, it was all about science and education. It was all about health physics. It was all about. Radiation emergency management and um, creating isotopes and and hospital um, hospital type uh, situations to help uh, people. We have been in the, the mission of serving the public good for over 75, mm-hmm. 76 years, and we can trace all of our core competencies, so to speak, back to the that that mission that Dr. Pollard you know had in when he had in terms of founding. You know who we are, and and still what we are today. Absolutely. We haven't strayed too far from those core capabilities. We've kept we've kept our promise to stay true to our not for profit mission and who we are. And again, that kind of speaks to our humbleness. Mm-hmm. That sometimes we have to think about you know. Okay, well we need to brag on ourselves every now and then, every once in a while, just so to on. make yep. people understand that huge national impact that we've had.
2: Absolutely, Jeff. Anything to add?
4: Well, I I would just say that, uh,
0: you know, our our purpose was to, uh, as Andy and I did this for the all staff, was to educate new members of the ORU team. So, Adam, I hope as a new member of the ORU team that this has been educational for you, and I hope the listeners will have a a greater appreciation for the broad impacts that ORU uh, has had in the past and continues to have uh, each and every day.
2: Awesome. Well, Andy Page and Jeff Miller, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about our impact um, on society as a whole and the great things are happening. And for a few minutes anyway, bragging about the great work that um, all of our people do across the board at LRU. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank
4: you, Michael. Thank you, Adam.
2: Thank you so much. Have a great day.
4: Thank you for listening
2: to Further Together,
1: the ORAU podcast. To learn more about any of the topics discussed by our experts, visit www.orau.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at ORAU, and on Instagram at ORAU together. If you like Further Together, the ORAU podcast, we would appreciate you giving us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your reviews will help more people find the podcast.